couple of Sundays ago, we began um, this series entitled My Life's Calling. Uh, when I pulled out um, this stool, and I said this stool has four legs, and there's a reason it has four legs for stability and for hopefully comfort. It sort of balances you out. And so as a result of that, we have concluded as a pastoral staff, as we have examined scripture, that there are four main callings that God issues to each and every one of us. That first calling is to know Christ, to know Christ, to come to a time and a point and place in your life where after hearing the gospel being presented, you're convicted of your sin, convinced that Christ died on the cross for your sin. You repent of that sin life and you turn to Christ and you commit your heart and life to him. You commit to him as your savior and your Lord. Once you make that commitment to know him, you then continue to follow him. You see, the call that he issues to us is not only a call for salvation, but a call to discipleship. It's a call in following Christ. And we saw last Sunday how he, as the good shepherd, extends to us a call not only to leave those others who are pinned in the flock to come out and then to continue to follow him. As he leads the flock, we then follow him. He calls out to us as he leads, and we, as his disciples, follow then Jesus as our shepherd. He is the one who dictates and determines the choices, the decisions, and the directions of our lives. We follow him. Thirdly, the third leg today we're going to study is serving Christ. He's calling us to serve him, to put everything that we have on the altar, to not only know him and to follow him, but to serve him. So as we begin talking about this whole concept called service, I want to sort of talk about for just a minute where I've been during spring break. Where have you been? I bet not as great a place as where I was. I mean, take a look at where I was. Colorado Springs at a place called Glen Erie. If you notice, it looks like a castle. Now, this castle was, was uh, built by, in the late 1800s, uh, the guy who founded Colorado Springs, is, uh, his name is General Palmer, and uh, he had a wife who had this idea that when they, after surveying the area, he bought the, the land and he set up, you know, his, his family, began building a family. She always wanted to live in a castle, and so he built for his wife, started to build a for his wife a castle, but didn't complete it until after her death. And so in the late 1800s, early 1900s, he completed the castle. And if you can see how large it is, it's an incredibly large castle. It is now owned by the Navigators. They purchased it, I think, in 1953. It was first offered to Billy Graham. And, and the guy who was doing all of the counseling and, and all of the, the follow-up for the Billy Graham Crusades, he was given an option to buy it. And instead of Billy Graham, Billy Graham allowed him to buy it. He purchased it and now belongs to the Navigators. It's their retreat center and their conference center or their headquarters is all there in Colorado Springs, just north of uh, the Garden of the Gods. And so I'm convinced that uh, south of where they are located is the Garden of the Gods, but this is the Garden of the God, not plural. There's only one. And so it was great to be there for three full days, 70 degree weather, about 50 at night. I mean, it, it's spectacular. And uh, you can barely see where we stayed. It's to my right, the little white part up there. That's where Patty and I got to stay uh, for four nights. And so we were there. Now, I kind of surprised her last week because she kind of, you know, wanted to stay home. She's a school teacher. Uh, three days a week she teaches school. And so she wanted to just kind of be home and hunker down. She's kind of a homebody. And, and uh, you know, I like to get away from time to time. And, 
And uh, the staff was stressing me out, so I needed to get away. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> and so, uh, and so I, I surprised her. I said, you know what? I booked us four nights at, uh, at Glen Erie. Do you want to go with me? <laughs> uh, and she uh, agreed to do that. And so we took off uh, Monday and went. And uh, one of the things that sort of caught my attention is when I began to look for places to stay, and I saw this, and we had been there 17 years ago. We stayed there 17 years ago. Uh, and it's been totally redone since then. One of the things that sort of captivated my attention was the, the breakfast deal. I mean, it comes with breakfast in the morning. I mean, when you sign up for a night to stay there, it comes with breakfast. And so I, I know some of you know me well enough to know, and I'm going to say this again for some of you who do not, I love to be served at breakfast. I don't know what it is about breakfast, but I like to sit down, you know, kind of sleepy-eyed and, you know, just barely awake after showering in the morning and getting, you're fresh and you sit down and somebody brings you coffee and somebody brings your eggs and bacon and they just, you know, they're there just to, I just, that's, I've loved that ever since I was a kid, to be served for breakfast. And so that was something I was looking forward to, sleeping in a castle and going to a dining room that was called the King James Dining Room. I mean, I mean, does that not spell service to you? You know what I'm saying? King James eats there. So, hey, it's got to be a great place, right? And so Patty and I made our way down there on Tuesday morning into the breakfast. And as soon as we walked in the, in the, anybody been there? Anybody here been there? Okay, a few of you. As we walked into the King James dining room, I was surprised by the fact that I discovered it was a buffet. It was not a surprise. It was a good surprise. It was a huge disappointment. <laughs> now, in defense of Glen Erie and their staff, they have incredible people there that do a great job and, and just, you know, they're just phenomenal people. And they all love the Lord and they all love to serve. But you had to get in line and you had to serve yourself and sit down. And so that was, that was a little bit of a disappointment for me because I like to be served. Now, be honest. Come on, be honest. Turn to your neighbor and say, be honest. Don't act spiritual because you're in church today. Act like it's Monday morning on the way to work. You like to be served. Don't you? You like people to serve you. There's something about human nature that causes us to want to be and like to be served. I mean, it, it's, it's ingrained within us. Now, some of us are more demanding than others and want a different type of service than others. I get all of that. But down deep in our core, in our humanity, we all like to be served. And what Jesus is calling those of us who are disciples is to a different way of viewing life. Not to approach, not to view life as someone who is seeking to be served, but as someone who is willing then to serve. What does that look like according to our passage that was read earlier a while ago? And by the way, don't you think he did a great job? Yeah, he had a tie on and everything, man, making me look bad. Anyway, I, I heard that over there. <clears throat> I didn't wear a tie today, that's all right, but he looked pretty cool. Where is he? There you are. Good job. The number one thing we need to do is to battle our tendencies. To battle our tendencies. We all have a tendency to want to be served. And if we're going to overcome the tendencies of being served or want to be served or seeking to be served, there's a factor that we have to battle those tendencies that, that are ingrained within us. These are tendencies that we are born with. It comes with our 
fallen nature. We get it because of the sin of Adam. And because of his sin, we all now are born sinners. And as a result of our depravity, because of our sin nature, because we come to this world very self-centered and very selfish. I mean, small children come into the world thinking that the world revolves around them. And a lot of us never get over that. We just become adults. And we must battle these tendencies if we're ever going to serve Christ in the way that he deserves and he demands. And we see in this text there are five elements or there are five characteristics of the tendencies that we are to battle. Look at verse 35. And the tendency that I want to first point out here is this this tendency to control things. We have a tendency to control And because we have a tendency to control, we want to control then the outcome of our lives. And we want to control our lives so much so that we want God to serve us rather than us serving God. Yes, that is our tendency. If we're honest deep in our core, often when we come to God, we want him to serve us rather than him serving us. I mean, we want, did I say that wrong? I did, didn't I? We want him to serve us rather than us serve him. That's what I meant. Verse 35, and James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Take a look at that for a minute. James and John. James and John and Simon Peter are the three in the inner core of the core of the disciples of Jesus. And James and John, according to Matthew, helps us understand that Salome, their mother, who is the sister of Mary, Jesus' earthly mother, conspires with her two sons to approach Jesus. Now, the reason why Mark leaves out Salome, which is Jesus' aunt, which means that James and John are are his cousins, we don't understand why, but he just leaves them out. And I think he leaves them out because really primarily underneath it all, it's not a mother who is seeking this for her children or her sons. I think it's the sons who put their mother up to it in Matthew. But Mark just sort of leaves that out and just leaves Salome to the side and said, James and John came to Jesus and they're the culprits. They're the ones behind it. They are the inner core of Jesus. The main three, two of the main three who approach Jesus, come to him and expect to be received. And as they approach him, they then speak to him and they call him teacher. That's an honorable thing to call Jesus. Hey, teacher. They're elevating him to a position of, of honor and esteem. Be careful when somebody sort of pats you on the back and says something good about you before they are about to really let you have it. And they elevate him to this teacher status. They say, we want you to do for us. We want you, Jesus, to do for us. Now notice the word whatever. Whatever. That is a blank check. They're asking Jesus to sign a blank check with, with no amount on it. Wouldn't that be cool? Hey, you, you come to somebody that you know that they have unlimited potential, unlimited means, unlimited resources, and you put a check in front of them and you say, sign it, and I'm going to fill it in, whatever my heart's desire. The sky's the limit. Jesus, we want you to do for us what we want you to do. In other words, we want you to serve us. We're not here to serve you. I can't can't imagine two disciples approaching Jesus and asking that. Can you? Until I look in the mirror and I analyze my prayer life. And as I analyze my prayer life, I often have a tendency to approach my Savior, to approach my Heavenly Father and say, hey, this is what I want you to do for me today. 
I don't come and ask him, what is it that you want me to do for you? I want you to do this for me. And we lay out this, this laundry list, this grocery list, this, this long list of to-dos for him to do for us today because we somehow want to be in control. We want to be in the driver's seat. And we got to battle that tendency because if we don't, we will seek to control our life to the point where we are seeking to please ourselves rather than to serve him. And we have to battle that tendency for control. Secondly, we need to battle the the carnal tendencies that we have. Look at verse 36. And he said to them, Jesus says to them, he speaks to them, and, and, and he doesn't really rebuke them, but he just simply asks them, what do you want me to do for you? I mean, he's smart enough to know I'm not going to sign a blind check and just give you a blind check letting you fill in the amount. I'm not going to do that. And I know you think I'm all-powerful and have all authority to be able to do whatever it is that you want me to do for you. And I, and I, I applaud that. But what is it that you're wanting me to do? It's not because Jesus is unaware of their intentions. I think he is, is, is very much in tune with where their heart is going and what their desires are. He's wanting them simply to articulate it, to verbalize it, to, to come out of their hiding place. Because you see, they're coming sort of circumvently. They're kind of coming behind the scenes. They don't want to really tell Jesus what they want. They want him first to agree to do what they want. And then they're going to tell him what they want. And he said, no, no, no. Tell me what you want. Be honest with me. What's your heart's desire? And they say to him, at least they're honest. They say to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and the other to the left in your glory. We want you to do for us what we want you to do. And what we want you to do is we want you to grant, to give us then the position of sitting, one at your right and one at your left. Now, a lot of us don't know a lot about what it means to be a king and someone to sit at the right and the left. So let me just sort of, sort of enlighten us for a moment. What that simply means is that the one who's sitting to the right is the number one right-hand man of the kingdom. I mean, the king who's sitting on the throne is the main man. The one on the right is the, the, the first right-hand man, and the one at the left is the second-hand man. He is like number three in the kingdom. So what, what James and John are asking these two brothers, one is wanting to be on the right side, number one, and the other was make us number two. We don't really care which one is number one, number two. We're just asking one of us needs to be number one, and one of us needs to be number two. So when you're sitting on your throne, in your glory, we want to share in it. I think that's what it boils down to. We want to share in your glory. Because the one who's sitting on the throne is getting all the glory. And if you think about it, if you're sitting to the right or the left of the one receiving all the glory, guess what? You're going to think within yourself, some of that's coming in my direction. And they're wanting to share the glory with Jesus. In other words, they're wanting a place, a position of power, of prominence, of prestige. They're wanting a place in which they too can then be served by the other subjects in the kingdom because one is at the right and one is at the left. And, and this carnality, this, of this ambition is driving them to come to Jesus, their, their master, their savior, their messiah. Now, Kudos to them, applause to them. They, they believe Jesus enough to know that he's the Messiah and that they are on their way to Jerusalem. If you read the passage before this one, they're on their way to Jerusalem. And Jesus told them, I'm on the way to Jerusalem. But he's already told them, I'm, I'm headed to Jerusalem to die. But they, they're clueless. They don't connect the dots. They know he's going to Jerusalem. And they think in and of themselves, we're headed to Jerusalem in order for him to establish his kingdom. But his, his, really, his, his throne is going to be a cross. 
And so they say, we want to sit on your right and we want to sit on your left. And these, these ambitions that they have are nothing but carnal. They're really aren't we like that? When we come into a place, don't we want to sit at the place of honor? Don't we want the accolades? Don't we seek the applause? Don't we seek the attaboys? Don't we want recognition from those who are beneath us? And that's our carnal appetite, simply these ambitions that are welling up that want us to be center stage, in the spotlight, having others to serve us. Well, controlling carnality, how about conceit? Look at the next verse, verse 38. And Jesus says to them, really in the form of a question and a revelation, you do not know what you are asking. Let me, let me shed some light here. He says, you do not know what you are asking. You have no idea what you're asking. I mean, he, is just, he just finished telling them, I'm headed to a cross where I'm going to die to be raised from the dead. Do you really know what you're asking? I mean, I think a lot of times when we ask Jesus of the things that we want, I, I think he comes back and says, do you really know what you're asking? Do you really know the cost or the price or the direction in the decision of what you're asking? This is going to lead to a place of incredible and extreme suffering, and you're wanting this. All you see is the, the, the end of the line. You don't see what it takes to get there. Are, are you sure that you know what you're asking? And notice then he turns it around on them, and he asks them a question. Are you able to drink the cup that I drank or to be baptized with the baptism of which I am baptized? Jesus is well aware of the fact that, that he's about to suffer. He's headed to Jerusalem. He's on the road that leading to, to the cross and to Calvary and to death and to suffering and to, to all of the horrific things that happen even post-crucifixion. Are you sure you can drink from that cup? That simply means to, to take in the full brunt of my, my suffering. Are you, are you sure that you're able to take on the cross that I'm about to bear? The obedience that's going to lead me to that cross? Are you sure that you want to travel down that road with me, a road to suffering? And notice their response. We are able. We are able. I mean, I mean, I find that arrogant, don't you? They tell their Savior, their Jesus, we are able. We have in and of ourselves enough sufficiency to meet the demand or the need that, that, that that's going to that's bring upon us. We, we are sufficiently able. We can do it. There's some, I think, who want to kind of give, give them a little bit of, uh, 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 you know, sort of a sly here. I think the disciples are arrogant enough when they say, we are able. For that word there means I am sufficient in and of myself to meet the need or to meet the demand of what I am asking. We are able. And aren't we sometimes in our human tendencies, because of our fallen nature, we somehow think we can pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps? That we have the resources and the sufficiency in of ourselves because we are strong and we are determined and we are disciplined and we are self-willed that we can make it happen. And so we have these arrogant disciples who are filled with conceit, who are battling, I think, the same things that you and I battle every day in this struggle to become servants. 
Notice then the carelessness in their assessment. In verse 39, the second part of the verse, and Jesus says to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. He's, he's revealing something to them. You guys are going to suffer. Following me is going to lead you to the path in which you too, like me, will take up your cross and you will die to yourself. James, we know, according to Acts, is the first apostle to be martyred for the cause of Christ. John later on is, is, is on an island called Patmos where he is, is living in exile. And eventually, some believe, historians believe, that he died a, a gruesome death in a labor camp. And so he's revealing to them their future. You will drink the cup and you will Be obedient to the place in which you will die for me. You will take up your cross. You will deny yourself. Then he says, but, however. It's a huge word. Notice, however, to sit at my right hand and sit at my left is not mine to grant. I mean, you would think that Jesus, the Son of God, had the authority to grant who would sit in his right and who's left, but not even he is that audacious. Not an, not, Jesus is not that arrogant then to, to, to tell them, I can, can, can determine who's going to sit on my right. He says to them, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Which you guys are recognizing. There's a plan going on here. There's a purpose in what is happening This has already been orchestrated. It's already been ordained. It's already been prepared by the Father, and I am executing his will. And who's going to sit at my right and who's going to sit at my left? God has already prepared that place for the people who are there. And aren't we sometimes careless in our assessments and thinking that we somehow can determine where we sit and where we don't sit and who sits where and who doesn't sit where? And in our carelessness, somehow, we, we leave out a sovereign God who is sitting on his throne, who in advance already predetermines who sits in what spot and who goes to what place. In some crazy way, though, that brings incredible comfort to us, doesn't it? To know that, that while we are free will people and we do have choices and decisions to make, that God who is sitting on his throne is sovereign and he has a plan and a purpose for each of our lives and he is the one who determines where we sit and where we serve. And then notice lastly the competition that kills them. Notice that happens in verse 41, the close of this little encounter here so far. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. The ten heard it. We're not told how they hear it, but they hear it somehow. And I can't help but sort of imagine that Simon Peter, who's been left out of the three, remember? It was James, John, and Simon Peter. I mean, they're, they're like, th- th- these three with Jesus are the core, the core of the disciples. And, and I can imagine Simon Peter is really hot because James and John have stabbed me in the back. They betrayed me. They've gone to Jesus without me, and they've asked one to sit on the right or on the left. They've left me out of the equation. And so maybe he's stirring the pot. We don't know, but conversation begins to be shared among the other 10 who were left out of the request. And they begin, the Bible says they become indignant. That means they become angry with James and John because they've been left out. And this word indignant means a little bit righteous indignation. It's unjust and unfair treatment, except it's toward themselves. And they're really mad at James and John. 
because they did that and left them out. And I think it's more jealousy and competition than anything else. One of the things that can destroy a congregation or a church more than anything else is the spirit of competition. Now I'm all for competition and I'm disappointed KU lost. But I'm kind of glad they lost because WSU lost earlier, so that makes us all even. Hey, you got to root for the home team, right? We're in Wichita. And they didn't show up this weekend. I don't know what happened, but they just didn't. Competition. We live in a competitive world, don't we? And there's something within us that wants to win. And Jesus is about to flip the coin, and he's about to turn everything upside down. He's about to turn his disciples' world upside down and redefine what success is. But we have this tendency for competition. And this competition can destroy a church. It can destroy a family. It can destroy a fellowship. While we were in the castle, some of you know me well enough, uh, staying in the castle was a really cool thing, and we were on the third floor uh, they need oxygen on the third floor because you're already close to 7,000 feet up in the air. And so by the time you get to the third floor, I mean, we're stopping halfway up, you know. It's about the, about the final time we were there. We finally made it all the way up without stopping. Um, the air's thinner up there. And my brain needs plenty of oxygen. But anyway, uh, and so uh, we were there on Tuesday morning. And, 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 you know, Patty is not quite as... as She's not a morning person like I am, and, and I, I've been getting up at 4.30, 5 o'clock, sometimes 3.15 for the last couple of weeks, months. I don't know why, but I just now I'm going to get up really early and, and having just me and God having some great times together. But anyway, and so I'm, I'm up early, and even though with the time change, and, and uh, um, so I began to roam the castle early in the morning and, and uh, going through nooks and crannies and trying to go through doors and all that. You know, I'm kind of a curious George kind of a guy. Can you see that? And so I discovered some things and some aspects about the castle that probably Patty would not discover. So I'm trying to take her with me. And then she's not, you know, quite the explorer that I am. And I'm more cautious about going into places where I sometimes need more caution. But so I, I've discovered some things and some past. And so I took her down to the second floor and I said, come on, let's go down here. And so we went down there and, and we discovered that, that this, this guy who built this castle... You read the history of the castle had dozens of servants that he brought in from all over the world. I mean, this guy's incredibly wealthy. I mean, he discovered Colorado Springs, and he's the one responsible for Colorado and all of the spring aspects of what it is today. And, and his name is everywhere, Palmer. And, uh, and so he had dozens of people that he flew in from all over the world to serve him. And so obviously when he built this castle, he built a section of the castle which is for servants. And it's a narrow corridor, and you know, and there's smaller rooms, and you can imagine a castle like Downton Abbey. And remember Downton Abbey? Anybody watch that? If you haven't, you need to. It's a phenomenal series. But anyway, and so I found that, and I tried to take Patty back there. And as we were going back there, we passed this section that looked like the servants would use to go up and down the floors. It's a narrow staircase. The one that, the, that he would use was wide and, you know, Wow, and, but theirs was in the back back there next to the quarters, very narrow and very steep. And there was a lady that was there getting some stuff out of the, 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 the closet, and she was obviously going to service the rooms that we were staying in. And, and uh, I asked her, I said, is this the servant's staircase? I wanted confirmation. I believed it was, but I wanted someone to confirm it. And she looked at me, 
paused for a second, and she said, matter of factly, don't you mean the help? I didn't think much about it. Patty and I, Tuesday night, were laying in bed, kind of going over our day. And Patty, who was more sensitive than I am, obviously, said, I think that lady was offended by that question. Because I think she thought you were calling her a servant. That's not what I was doing at all. But I got to thinking no one likes to be called a servant. In 39 years of ministry, I have seen a lot of resumes over the years. And I've never seen a resume that says my character strength is servanthood. No one declares themselves to be a servant. No one wants to be a servant. No one aspires to be a servant. We all have this tendency within us that we want to be served. And if we don't battle that tendency, we can never be servants of Christ in a way that would glorify him. Number two, not only do we need to battle tendencies, but we need to become like Jesus. It's interesting in the text, he said, you need to become like Jesus. Notice in verse 42, how do I become like Jesus? First of all, resist the world's influence. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, I'm not sure if there were other people around who were part of this, this conflict, this disunity going among the, the disciples because you got 10 mad at the other two. And obviously Peter, you know, he's always hot and probably mouthing a lot of stuff. And so Jesus sort of gathers them together. And this, this call means to summon them closer to him. He said, guys, come a little closer. You'll never become a servant when you're distant to Jesus. Because the closer you come into intimacy with him, the more of a servant you will become. So he summons them closer to him. And I think he does that too because it was disunity and he wants to bring them together. You know, let's get close, guys. You're, you're, you're separated by this anger and all that. You, you just come close and come close around me. And he said, you know, you know that those who are considered rulers and Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. I don't think he's mad or anything. He says, you know, by reasonable thought process, you know, by observation, that those who consider, this word consider means that they think of themselves in this way. They consider themselves rulers and then he says Gentiles. And why do he use the word Gentiles? Because I think he's referencing them as those who do not follow Jesus. They're not Christ's followers. They're not disciples. They're not only part of the Jewish group, but they're not even a part of those who follow Jesus. And these Gentiles lord it over them. They love power and they love prominence and they love pomp and circumstance and they love to, to air out. And the, the higher they climb, the lower they treat everybody else. And they love to exercise authority over everyone as if they were the kings. And, and I have authority. And because of that, you are subject to my authority. And they like to just sort of just pin people underneath their thumb and push them down. But notice what he says, but it shall not be so among you. It shall not be so among you. Don't do that. The world around us is a world that constantly is selling service. And it's constantly trying to influence how we live our lives in the cultural context of 2017. 
I mean, even one of the, the greatest places that I like to eat, uh, Chick-fil-A, they say, what, is it, what does they say? It's my pleasure. And they lavish you with service. I mean, it can't be the price of the chicken because it's extraordinary. I mean, it's, it's high, isn't it? Paying that much money for seven pieces of chicken this little? I mean, that's, why did we go there? Because of their, because it tastes good. Service. And the world around us is constantly saying, feed your appetite for service. And we have to resist the world's influence around us. And that's what Jesus is saying. These Gentiles, these unbelievers, they seek that, but not those who are my disciples. You're seeking something different. And then notice, he redefines success in verse 43. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. The greatest must be the servant. Aspire for greatness. And the greatness that you should aspire to is one of being a servant. You want to be great in the kingdom? Become a servant. A servant is someone who dies to their needs so that the needs of others can be met. So become a servant. Let me invert everything. And then he says, and whoever would be first among you must be a slave of all. A slave, not just to those we want to be a slave to, but a slave of all. And he says, not only should you be a servant, but let me even escalate it a little more. You must become a slave. Did you know a slave was lower socially than a servant in Jesus' day? They were someone that was owned by someone else, and it was someone who depended completely and totally upon their master for everything. Sounds like take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me, doesn't it? Jesus is the master. But we need to redefine success if we're going to follow Jesus. As we reject what the world is constantly selling us on all of their commercials. I lived a whole week without television, and it was glorious. I didn't have a clue who was winning and who was losing until I got back. But our world is constantly feeding us with this definition of success. And Jesus says, let me invert the whole thing. And if you want to really be first, if you want to be great, be a servant. No, be a slave to all. But notice he says in verse 45, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Let me put myself out there, Jesus is saying, and I want you then to reflect my example. I, the Son of God, who left my glory in heaven and was born of a virgin named Mary, and who has lived a sinless life, fully God and fully man, I have every right for everyone to serve me, and yet I didn't come to be served, I came to serve. Wouldn't that be great if we had a church filled with people who said the same thing? I've seen churches split because they want to be served. They don't come to church to serve. They come to be served. And there's more conflict in the church today, not in our church, but in other churches, because people, I want you to serve me by God. If you don't serve me the way I think I deserve to be served, then you're going to hear about it. And we need to understand that we're not here to be served. We are here to serve. I know that's a novel concept for churches today because the great big churches today are selling service. 
They're not, they're not selling, come and be a servant. They're selling, come and be served. And by God, if you sell that, eventually, if you don't serve them right, guess what? There's another church down the street that'll sell something better for their service, and they'll jump onto that. And so you got a series of church hoppers. Everybody's looking for the better, the better way this church or that church is going to serve my needs rather than us coming to Christ and say, how can we serve? He didn't come to serve. He came to be served. He came to serve. But how did he serve? To give. He not only came to serve, meaning that he came to die to his needs so that our needs could be met, but he came to give. That's a huge word in this text. To give his life as a ransom for many. To give. That means he came to take what is his, to give it to us so that we might be ransomed from our sin against God. He paid the price for our debt, died in our place, taking on the full wrath of God on that cross so that we might be ransomed from our debt to God and be set free to serve, to give. The greatest is a servant, and the first is the one who gives. As we close, I just want to mention just an interesting little story that I picked up this week about a Two boys who were coming in from outside. They were twins. They were about seven or eight years old. And, and um, they were hot and they wanted something to drink. And they came in and there was a nice two glasses of, of ice cold Kool-Aid. And they were drinking those down. And one of them grabbed the cookie jar to look inside the cookie jar because they were hungry. And they noticed there was only one cookie. But there are two boys. So guess what happened? An argument erupted between the two. Who was going to get the, the, lone, the one cookie? Mom overheard the ruckus and came in the room and thought, this would be a great opportunity to teach my children about what would Jesus do. <laughs> and so she said, boys, let me teach you a lesson. She grabbed the cookie and she put it on a plate and held it down in sort of their eye view there. And she said, which one of you will be Jesus? If Jesus were standing here, he'd let the other brother have the cookie and he would not take the cookie. So which one of you is going to be Jesus? And without hesitation, one of them grabbed it, turned to his brother and said, this time you be Jesus. I want the cookie. The reality is, that's us in our core, isn't it? We're always looking out for ourselves, even at the expense of others. It's our human nature. We've got to battle those tendencies and dare to become more like Christ who came not to be served, but to serve. For our call is not to just know him and to follow him, but to serve. And my question to you is, do you know him? Have you come to the place and the point in your life that you know absolutely for certain that you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus, turned from your sin and trusted him as your savior and committed to follow him? And are you following him? But are you serving him? Because wouldn't it be great if every one of us in this room knew our place of service and were serving him? Let's pray.